0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Last month was the 50th anniversary of Americans walking on the moon. What would it take to get a similar mobilization of money and effort today to combat climate change? D.D. Guttenplan will comment. He's editor of The Nation. Also... 15 minutes without Trump. We want to take a brief break from Trump talk, and instead we want to talk about a trek in the Himalayas. Would you call that taking a break from Trump? We spoke with Pico Iyer about Peter Matheson's exploration of suffering, impermanence, and beauty in his classic book, The Snow Leopard. It's out now in paperback. That'll be our last segment today. But first, taking it to the streets... Trump Watch starts right now. Trump gets worse every day, so why aren't more people in the streets? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Katha, welcome back.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Well, remind us about the great days of protest right after Trump took office in January 2017.
1: Well, it was pretty exciting. It seemed there was almost a year there where people demonstrated all the time. First of all, there was the, the Women's March the day after the inauguration. That was huge. One of the biggest demonstrations that there had ever been. There were marches for science, for the environment. There was a big march on Income Tax Day about Trump not revealing his taxes, which it's still, you know, we could do that every year. That's still going on. And other ones as well. And it just seemed that uh, there was this practical orgy of phoning your congressperson and your senator, sending postcards. I used to postcard the White House all the time. just saying, I hate, just want you to know, I still hate you. (laughs) Um, And I was far from alone. I want to also say that remember when um, voters would confront Republican lawmakers, when they would have their town halls in their district. I remember there was a picketing even of Democrats like Sydney, like uh, Senator Schumer at his house uh, when he seemed too eager to compromise with Trump. So there was a lot of militancy at many different levels.
0: So first we had a year of militant, massive, nationwide protests. And then there was a second chapter in the resistance as the midterm elections approached. Remind us about that.
1: Yes. Then there was, uh, which is still going on, local organizing around elections. And that has been pretty successful we took back, the in 2018, we took back the House. We made important progress in the states. Black voters mobilized. There was, a, you know, a big drive to get people registered, to get people the papers they need to register. And there was in, in Indivisible and Run Vote Lead and Swing Left. The Democratic Socialists of America were very active. And all that on-the-ground, door-to-door stuff is really important. And you know who was doing a lot of it? It's really interesting was these mostly suburban, mostly white women of the resistance with a capital R. And that was very effective and very important when you consider that 52% of white women voted for Trump in the first place.
0: And that was then, and this is now, where are we now?
1: Well, you know, this is what I wonder, and, you know, I'm sure I miss a lot, but we have this enormous crisis on the border. We have the most horrible things happening there. We have all, you know, children in cages and families being separated and little kids being taken away with no identification to get them back to their families. Just terrible things. Pe- people have died in those places. And there has been a lot of fundraising, um, a lot of it online, um, and I'm sure most of the people listening to this have donated to HIAS and RICEs and other groups. And there have been some demonstrations, but it isn't it isn't what I would have expected. I, I went to um, a demonstration in New Haven on July second, which was the day when there was a national call for demonstrations, and you know there were two hundred people there, and I felt like I almost knew them. You know, <laughs> they they could all have been Nation readers. I didn't feel that kind of breakout rage. I know there are things happening on the border itself. And, you know, there are lots and lots of good people doing lots and lots of good things. But the kind of thing where it really takes fire, I, I still don't see.
0: My favorite recent protests was the Lights for Liberty campaign, the Vigil to End Human Detention Camps, which brought thousands of Americans to detention centers, prisons around the country, into the streets, and sometimes in their own front yards to protest the inhumane conditions faced by refugees. The, The call was, shine a light, bring a candle. Here where we record our show in L.A., Almost 5,000 people gathered at dusk outside the ICE Metropolitan Detention Center downtown, and they shined their lights at the windows of the prison and chanted in Spanish, You are not alone. There were more than 20 other vigils like that just in Southern California, hundreds of others all over the country. I look at the list. There were six in Alabama, there were three in Arkansas, and this is now. Your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. There were lights for liberty vigils in 13 different cities and little towns in Minnesota, like there was one in Grand Marais up by the Canadian border. There was one in Ely, the gateway to the Boundary Waters canoe wilderness. There was Elk River, which is the big ice detention center for Minnesota, where several hundred Immigrant detainees are held in the Sherburne County Jail. Hundreds of people showed up there to protest. So this was a little bit like the Women's March, where it was it was decentered all around the country. Sometimes just a half a dozen people, sometimes thousands of people gathered for these protests. It didn't get the publicity that some of the bigger marches had, but I thought it was wonderful.
1: Well, I think it's wonderful, too. And in fact, that happened the weekend I was... Uh, it, that happened right before my column went to press. So I had to rewrite it to be a little more hopeful than than the original had been.
0: And what about Me Too? It's not a street protest movement, but it's certainly changing America.
1: Absolutely. And I guess I was thinking more about, about the border. And Me, Me Too is a very interesting phenomenon because it isn't really a lot of demonstrations, don't you think? Uh, I mean, has there been a big Me Too demonstration? I don't think so. Um, it's
0: individual people, mostly in social media, telling what happened to them.
1: Exactly, exactly. And a Me Too has really changed a lot of things. And I don't mean to play down people's activism, because a lot of people are very active, and, and social media is one of the places where they are.
0: If we look around the world, is there any evidence... Anywhere in the world that street protests are effective?
1: Well, these yellow vests in France are really something. They have been coming to Paris every Saturday for over half a year to protest uh, an increase in gas taxes, to rally against a lowered speed limit on country roads and ask for a raise in the minimum wage, to name just a few of their issues. And they've, they've won. They've won a lot. In Hong Kong, one in seven residents, imagine that, one in seven residents took to the streets over a law predict, permitting the extradition of um, criminal defendants to mainland China. Um, and that's still going on, and it's becoming quite violent and horrible. But the bill was shelved, and Carrie Lam, who's the territory's chief executive, apologized. I mean, she's still there, but say, I know people say, you know, oh, street protests, that's So that's so 60s that that doesn't accomplish anything. That is really not true. It's really not true. And those are two examples of uh, places in which it's not true. And, you know, people power, people power has done a lot. People power overthrew the Marcos regime in in, um, the Philippines and Puerto Rico. What about that? People power. I just wonder what would happen if we were a little more like that.
0: So you're obviously right that despite the protests that we have seen and the, the critical movements that have arisen, there certainly has been a dramatic decline of mass street protests in America compared to the year after Trump took office. Do you have any explanation for this? Is it just Trump fatigue?
1: Well, I asked, I asked a bunch of people that, and uh, one answer I got a lot of was, um, yeah, Trump fatigue. Every day it's a new, awful thing, and you can't keep up. Another was people are depressed, another was it's too hot oh. <laughs> I, I don't accept the weather the weather explanation, but I think a lot of people are depressed, and they're concentrating on the little piece that they feel they can get somewhere with, and not so much the big picture. I think a, a big a big aspect of this is people are already turning to the presidential election, which is, you know, 16 or 15 months away. Um, But already, you know, that's in the headlines every day. And so I think there's a sense of like, well, okay, we've really got to concentrate on 2020 and not, you know, just aim everything at that.
0: Well, after you wrote about this demobilization for your latest column in The Nation, your readers took to the comments section of the website to help us understand and provide their own answers to this question. And the, the most popular answer to the question of why are not people not taking to the streets anymore, among the comments on your piece, uh, was Nancy Pelosi. It's her fault. Let me quote this reader of your column. Why aren't people taking to the streets like they used to? Pelosi and the entire Democrat leadership— are worthless and determined to take the nation back to the good old days of neoliberalism and republicanism light. They are determined to force another Clinton clone on us to animate a zombie Democrat like Joe Biden and swipe the nomination on the third ballot of the convention, close quote. This got 18 thumbs up responses and only six thumbs down responses. I noticed you did not post a reply.
1: Um, I almost never post anything in the comments section because um, I think the level of discourse there is pretty low. Um, So
0: So you don't think Nancy Pelosi is the reason for the demobilization of street protest?
1: No, I don't. I I don't think so. I, I think we have to look into ourselves a little bit more.
0: Do you have any concluding thoughts?
1: Well, you know, in my piece... I said something I've been thinking about, which is I say, we've internalized a tiny Trump who lives in our heads and jeers at our puny efforts, our letters, our clever memes, and our belief that facts are stubborn things. After all, everyone knows facts are just fake news. And I think that there's some truth to that. I think, you know, we love to portray Trump as completely ridiculous and ineffective and stupid, but that's not true. There's a way in which Trump is very clever as a propagandist, and I think that it's very demoralizing. It's very demoralizing to have him as our president.
0: Katha Pollitt wrote about taking protests to the streets for her latest column. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Always great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, John. Nice to be here. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner. Last month was the 50th anniversary of Americans walking on the moon, an anniversary loved by the mainstream media that was not celebrated by the left. What is it about the left and the space program? For comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation and author most recently of the book The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. Don, welcome back.
2: Great to be back, John.
0: Well, the nation wrote about the moon landing back when it happened in the summer of 1969, 50 years ago. What did the magazine say?
2: Well, we said two things, neither of which will surprise your listeners. Um, We thought that the money would be better spent here on Earth. And somewhat surprisingly to me, because it was quite a bit ahead of ahead of our time in in this, Uh, we pointed out that although all the commentators on TV were talking about the blackness of space, all the faces you saw on the screen from Houston and elsewhere were white. Um, So that was our contemporary response to the space program, at least as a magazine.
0: Well, that's, you know, certainly what I thought at the time is what you're describing the magazine said. This was... uh an attempt to make America look great and distract people from the crimes we were committing in Vietnam and in our inner cities. What did you think 50 years ago?
2: Well, this is maybe where we come into a bit of a generational divide, because uh, 50 years ago, which means I, I am old enough to have been alive 50 years ago, i just come back from a Boy Scout camping trip uh, and I was completely in love with the space program, and I guess I never completely lost that sense of awe and amazement. I mean, my my parents uh, had to be prevailed upon to wake me up to watch Neil Armstrong set his foot down that ladder on the moon, but they did, and I'm still eternally grateful. I should maybe also confess, and this isn't something that probably the last editor of the nation would say, that... Uh, It was one of the sadder days in my life when I realized that that having to wear glasses meant I could never become an astronaut, which which was my career ambition, at least until the age of 12 or 13. Um, And I guess when I saw our coverage this time, and uh, I have to say I, I don't always blow my own horn on this program, but it was my idea that we should have some graphic comment on the anniversary of the news landing, and uh, Robert Best, our wonderful design director, came up with, found someone who, who had um, uh, Peter Cooper, the cartoonist, who sent in this wonderful cartoon of Trump on the moon, which allowed me to write one of my favorite recent headlines, which was To the Moon, yeah. which again, for, re- for readers of a certain age, will conjure up Jackie Gleason's voice, and perhaps his yes. hand making a fist and i thought that was the that was the best rationale we could come up with now for reviving the space program is if they would promise to put trump on the first rocket and may, <laughs> and maybe leave him there you know i was trying to get at something a little deeper which i think uh is a long term gripe of mine which is what i call eat your spinach socialism uh and it's simply the idea that you know if you're on the left then it's all about uh, the greater good, and it's always has there's always has to be a, a consciousness of all the evil that we're doing all the time, and that there's no space in our lives because we're not allowed to have space in our lives for for simple awe now of course, put awe at putting a man or a person on on the moon is not simple awe because that involves a lot of economic and other policy decisions and and I think it's perfectly right that the nation noticed them in 1969 and continues to point them out uh, but i also think that we we can do both that we can you know this is this is in fact the richest country in the history of the world and we could give everybody uh, decent health care and a decent pension and a decent standard of living and free pre-kindergarten and college education at public universities and still explore space because we're humans and we have the urge to explore, and I guess I wanted to push back a little bit against the, the kind of orthodoxy on the left that says, oh no, that's not for us.
0: Well, just looking at the money in the mobilization that went into the moonshot, uh, the nation argued then that it was a question of priorities. This was the orthodox objection. The money should have been spent on the inner cities. That was the summer, let me just remind our listeners, when especially in Detroit and Newark, there were massive riots and rebellions that really destroyed the inner cities there. They showed the desperation and rage that prevailed in northern uh, urban black uh, ghettos Shouldn't we ask the same question about priorities today?
2: Of course we should ask the same question. And in fact, if you look at the editorial I wrote, A Moonshot for the Earth, it says it has always been a question of priorities. And indeed, we should we should ask the question of priorities, and I I urge us to answer it by making the Green New Deal this generation's moonshot. In other words, by making the conversion to a post-petroleum economy and undertaking every bit as ambitious, not just as ambitious economically, although I think we do need to spend money on that order of magnitude at least, but also as ambitious intellectually and emotionally, and even if you want to go there spiritually, uh, that you know something to lift the hearts and minds and gazes of a generation. Uh, I think yes, we need to do that, and we could, we can do that. I, I would slightly demur in the sense that I. I'm not sure I would sign up to the belief that doing that means we therefore have to turn away from exploring our own solar system. But that's not that's not my main argument in this in this editorial. My argument in A Moonshot for the Earth is that the Green New Deal for this generation can be what the space program was for my generation, which isn't just something to watch on TV or to spend money on, but a source of incredible inspiration and wonder.
0: And in your piece for The Nation, you hasten to add that you're not the first person to suggest that we need a mobilization like the space program of the 60s to respond to climate change.
2: Well, that's right. No, back in 2003, the Apollo Alliance tried to bring labor and environmental groups together, and uh, five years ago in in the nation, Van Jones was arguing for a green capitalism. I guess what I would say is that those are both good ideas, but they're not ambitious enough that the Apollo Moonshot cost us $288 billion in today's dollars, uh, and the Green New Deal ought to be at least as big, um, and also uh, I point out, well, there are a couple of things. I mean, I point out uh, that unlike the new the, the Apollo program, which was a choice and in some sense perhaps a luxury, saving the Earth isn't a choice. It isn't an option. It's a necessity. So we, we have to do it. Uh, But I also think that given that we have to do it, we ought to take a certain amount of comfort from President Kennedy's injunction at at the inauguration of the space program that we choose to do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I mean, I think getting ourselves off of our addiction to fossil fuels is not going to be easy, but doing it will be an inspiration, and also we have to do it. I think the one other thing to throw in uh, to this discussion, which I didn't really mention in, in my nation piece, is that you know it used to be that whenever we would make a case for really ambitious transformative uh, social programs and not just social programs but government programs, because remember a lot of the same people who say they love they hate government cheered on the space program, so you know not all government programs are created equal clearly that it used to be that the the conservatives and the republicans said well fiscally we can't do this because you know Orthodox economics, because supposedly the laws of economics, well, all those laws have been thrown out of the window in the last two years or three years, you know, the the Republicans clearly think that we can spend money on whatever they want to spend money on, so they have no standing to say we can't spend money on on the order of magnitude that it will take to do a Green New Deal on a Green New Deal. And I think that's an important political asset that we should also realize that we have now.
0: So should our conclusion on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing be if we can put a man on the moon, we can slow down climate change?
2: I think if we can put a man on the moon, we can not just slow climate change, we can get ourselves off fossil fuels, we can build a 21st century transportation system so that Americans don't have to use their cars to get anywhere in this country, and we can provide millions of good, well-paying, satisfying union jobs in transforming the economic and energy infrastructure of this country.
0: D.D. Guttenplan, he wrote about how the Green New Deal is this generation's moonshot. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. This was great.
2: Great to be here, John. Thanks.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Finally, 15 minutes without Trump. Instead, a naturalist treks high into the Himalayas, into a world of snow and silence, wind and blue. The book about that trek, called The Snow Leopard, has become a classic. And the author, Peter Matheson, is one of our greatest writers. Now, that book is being reissued by Penguin Classics with a wonderful new introduction by Pico Iyer. He is the author of many books. He's written about Tibet for The New Yorker, The New York Review, and The New York Times. And now he has his own new book out. It's called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. Pico Iyer, welcome back.
3: Thank you. It's nice to be here, John.
0: Well, who was Peter Matheson when he went into the Himalayas in 1973? And what was he looking for?
3: He was a 45-year-old man um, accompanying his great friend George Schaller, one of the country's great biologists. Uh, Peter Matheson was already, uh, as you have mentioned, a naturalist who was used to going to remote places in the world. But I think the two things that really animate this journey are, first, that uh, his young wife had just begun to introduce him to Zen Buddhism, and he was beginning to think about what lies behind our thoughts and what lies behind our words. And secondly, uh, that young wife uh, had just died of cancer uh, a few months before. So even as he's going on this trip... um, to ostensibly to look for the, um, the mating habits of the blue sheep in the Himalaya, and also hoping to spot the famously rare and elusive snow leopard. I think what he's really carrying along with him are his dawning understandings about Buddhism and his haunted memory of his young wife's recent death.
0: And the place he went to... I, even now, have, don't know anything about it. Inner, <laughs> inner Dolpo. What, what was Inner Dolpo in 1973?
3: No, You're right. I mean, I've spent a lot of time around the Himalayas, and I've barely heard of it, and certainly never met anyone else who, who's been there. It's a very, very remote area, um, almost unvisited to this day uh, by people. So in that sense, it's probably similar today to the way it was in 1973. So it's really just uh, these two uh, adventurous from New York and their Sherpas uh, and uh, the huge snow mountains and wildness and emptiness all around them.
0: So you have visited uh, some of the high plateaus of the Himalayas. What are they like? What do you see there?
3: Uh, They're they're as as exalting and magical, I almost say to my shame, uh, as you would expect. I remember the first time I went to Tibet, was in 1985 and I was a writer on world affairs for Time magazine so I was really determined not to be enchanted you know I was I was a hard-nosed kid you know worldly-wise reporter as I saw it and I was determined not to be um, not to be taken in by the images of Tibet that transfix us all but almost my first day in Lhasa I remember climbing up to to a mountain uh, or rather actually to the Potala Palace in the shadow of the snowcaps And just stepping out on terraces under this intense cobalt sky uh, with shafts of sunlight coming into these little dusty rooms where monks were muttering their prayers. And I really felt carried out of the world I knew and carried out of the self I knew, actually. And I think it's got to do something with the thin air and the high environment, probably culture shock, probably jet lag, too. But it's, it's a strikingly powerful and transporting area.
0: So you've written a a new introduction to Peter Matheson's classic book, The Snow Leopard. And in that piece, you quote uh, Thoreau, who in the conclusion to Walden... Wrote a very fam- now famous sentence, it is not worthwhile to go round the world to count the cats in Zanzibar. Uh, I'm sure Peter Matheson is familiar with that uh, 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 sentence. Uh, why did he go round the world to count the cats in Inner Dolpo? Well, I think part of the
3: uniqueness of Peter Matheson, which is also the uniqueness of this book, is that he's on the one hand a very very serious naturalist whose first book was Wildlife in America, and who genuinely does have a scientific curiosity about species and um, and places that he's never seen before. At the other, on the other hand, he's also a novelist, and so he's interested in the inner nature, in the invisible nature, in what takes place inside us. And so I think he went on the journey as a naturalist, thinking this was a rare chance to see a part of the globe he'd never seen and uh, creatures that he would never see otherwise. And yet, as he took that first step, he also realized that he was going to go into those places in himself that perhaps he'd always shy away from at home. And, And to go back to your last question, I think the most striking thing for me about the Himalayas is It's 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 very barren and it's very sparse, and you lose all sense of complication and distraction, and you're really returned to yourself up in those high mountains, especially where he was because that was very obscure, and there's nowhere to hide. You have to look head on at your anger, your fear, your pain, and I think that's one thing that he knew that he would get to do when he when he went on the trip.
0: Well, today, of course, there's a lot of uh, organized uh, hiking in the Himalayas, and uh, hikers today, of course, make sure they have the the very best high-tech hiking boots. There's a lot of cult boots now. Uh, is that what Peter Matheson did?
3: No, you know, he's, he's a very, um, he likes roughness, and he likes difficulty, and he likes challenge, I think. Um, so although he had this group of porters, Sherpas, that were helping them along on this trip, interestingly, one of these Sherpas, he regards almost as a demon, uh, and the trip is into the opposite of comfort and the opposite of security, which I think is exactly what appealed to him as a Zen student and later um, somebody who was ordained as, as a Zen priest. And I know, you know, like many of us, I've read this book five, six times, I think, since, since it came out. And each time it changes and grows as I do. And I used to think it was just a beautiful kind of quest allegory about somebody going into these radiant mountains and finding truth. And it is that. But what struck me rereading it this time, was um, that it's, it's so unvarnished and tough and rigorous a vision of what you find in the mountains. He, he gets intimations of, of great clarity and beauty um, at 18,000 feet, but also what he's getting at every moment is r- reminders of his own imperfection. And even after he comes down from the mountain, it's not into a happy ending. He's still impatient, and he's still uh, greedy by his own reckoning, and he's still scared. And um, in some ways, I think it's a very enlightened view of enlightenment, because it doesn't suggest that everything's going to get sorted out.
0: We're speaking with Pico Iyer. he's written the introduction to a new edition of uh, Peter Matheson's classic, The Snow Leopard. It's being published by Penguin Classics this month. One of the other fascinating things about this whole project is that um, Peter Matheson was a staff writer for The New Yorker. And wasn't it The New Yorker that sent him to 18,000 feet?
3: Yes, it was. And I think it's the new yorker that really schooled him in meticulousness and precision which i think he had already but you know the beauty of this book is that on the one hand it's a it's a transporting spiritual allegory on the other hand it's full of details at every moment just like any scientist he records the temperature the altitude the terrain of uh, what he's passing and I think when we think of spiritual books, we often think of books that fly into the clouds, that leave the everyday very quickly behind and, and tell us uh, what we dream of in our kind of Shangri-La visions. But the beauty of this book is that because it was written for The New Yorker, uh, Peter Matheson couldn't take any shortcuts, and he had to bring that reportorial eye and close observation to everything around him, which means that when he does describe uh, transports here, they're very grounded ones, uh, and they're ones that have been, are going to be fact-checked by teams of um, <laughs> colleagues back in New York. And so uh, there's, some, there's a great solidity to his writing that I think is, is really rare. You can feel that every sentence um, he's, he's run through his mind again and again to make sure it'll stand up to the scrutiny of uh, professional researchers as well as um, to the truth of the experience.
0: So on the one hand, this is a a book about uh, rare and elusive and exalted uh, landscapes and experiences. But but in The Snow Leopard, Peter Matheson also tells us that he has an eight-year-old son who he left behind, a boy who... Uh, has already lost his mother, that, that certainly makes him look bad, look, looks like a, he's a bad uh, father. Why do you think he put that in the book?
3: Well, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because that's one of my favorite moments in the book, and I've had many discussions with people about it over the years. Just as you say, um, he includes this letter from his son saying, you know, I miss you and I'm lonely, um, please will you come back? And he, he tells the son, don't worry, I'll be back before Thanksgiving. And as the trip goes on and the days keep mounting, you realize that he's not going to be back before Thanksgiving and he's going to have broken his promise to the eight-year-old son. And just as you say, that does show him in a bad light. And, and what impresses me so much is the fact that Peter Mason chose to include that letter. Uh, all of us, every day in our lives, have things happen that uh, show us in a bad light or show us not at our best. And if we're writers, nearly always we're trying to win over... Uh, the, the the reader and show her how how brave and and selfless and heroic we are and so I know as a writer myself when something shows me in a in a bad light my first inclination is to keep it out of the book and the very fact that Peter Mason puts that incriminating letter in the book tells me that this is a book about candor and about not glossing anything over and, in fact, about going into the difficult parts of yourself. Um, and I know many readers are alarmed that uh, to witness uh, the letter and then to realize that the father is not going to be able to honor his promise. But um, I know most of the great travelers that I read have lots of secrets when they travel. They have companions that they never mention. They have secret girlfriends here and there. Uh, Many of the great travelers can't even drive while they're portraying themselves as heroic adventurers. But Peter Masson by including that letter, is saying, I'm going to be up front with you, and I'm going to look at the things that even I would rather not see in myself, probably.
0: Well, you've already mentioned the the um, the Sherpa, one of the porters, who's a central character in the book, and in fact, in many ways, the most powerful character in the Snow Leopard is is not the author. It's it's a different, another guy, this Sherpa, who's one of the porters. Uh, Tell us about him, please.
3: His name is Tukten, and he's a very haunting character. You feel that he's got a lot of secrets, that he's probably a little dishonest. He's always fighting with the other porters. Uh, There's something shadowy and and, and dark and unsettling about him. Yet Peter Masson, again, with that same honesty, looks at this man, and he says, well, he's he's almost my familiar. It's almost like looking at a reflection of myself. And, of course... One of the beauties of the book, The Snow Leopard, is Peter Matheson is determined to see the snow leopard. He never actually sees it. Uh, he's determined to go into the Himalayas to meet uh, a lama, a wise man in, in a remote monastery. And in fact, he walks right past that wise man and doesn't even recognize him. And when he does talk to the wise man, he finds this gritty, down-to-earth soul who's very hardy but doesn't seem to be offering wisdom. And at the same time, in his own group, he has this very slippery, shadowy character whom nobody really trusts, and as the book goes on, Matheson almost begins to suggest that the real teacher is this slippery Sherpa, um, and that in fact, one way or another, he can learn more from this guy than he can from all the wise men that he thinks he's seeking, partly because this slippery man, is uh, Tukten, is so undiluted. And, and Peter Matheson has a wonderful line in which he says, you feel that this man would look unconcerned upon rape or resurrection. In other words, he's kind of like... Uh, a zen wild man mountain hermit sage who's attained some kind of position in himself where nothing that happens in the world is going to fluster him. And almost against his wishes, Peter Matheson realizes, well, this odd guy may, in spite of himself, be a teacher.
0: So... uh... In the end, Peter Matheson never sees the famously rare and elusive Snow Leopard. The, the wise man he went to find doesn't impress him very much. Would you say that the book has a happy ending?
3: Yes. It's a typically zen, which means complex and paradoxical and contradictory ending, but really, I think it's about working your way through ambition, among other things. All of us have intentions, destinations, when we set out, even when we set upon our day. I want to achieve this. I want to see this and this. And what this book suggests is not finding them is actually a, a richer and more spacious kind of conclusion. If Peter Masson had seen the snow leopard, he'd have an ending for the book, and it would be a kind of diminishing ending. But what he, what he understands as he makes this fairly rigorous, austere ascent, is that he doesn't have to see the snow leopard. It's more important to see himself. It's more important to think through his obligations to his late wife and, and his son. That the snow leopard is really a pretext for looking at those things that maybe he would never be able to see uh, if if he was at home. And so I think by shirking the obvious happy ending. He's taking us into something that's much more lifelike and and in some ways um, much much more fulfilling. And I think it speaks to anyone who's on a spiritual path, who at the outset may think, I want enlightenment, I want wisdom, I want to find a teacher. And probably the more he proceeds along that, the more he sees, well, enlightenment probably just uh, takes the form of appreciating this cow dung along the street, or the wise man is whoever happens to be around you at the time. And uh, you, you get stripped of your lofty notions, I think. And I, I, I think that's one reason why The Snow Leopard has been such an enduring book and will continue to endure, because, uh, because it's, not about, it's about not finding The Snow Leopard, and it's about, um, in that sense, disappointment and, and coming, coming to peace with imperfections.
0: Pico Iyer, his introduction to a new edition of Peter Matheson's classic book, The Snow Leopard, has just been published by Penguin Classics. Thank you, Pico.
3: Thank you, John. Always a delight to talk to you.
0: We spoke with Pico Iyer about The Snow Leopard at KPFK in Los Angeles in September 2008. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.